Some call me Steve, Dad, Husband or Friend. Others might call me Boss, Coach or Mentor. Today you can call me the Leadership Hacker. Thanks for listening in, I really appreciate it. My job as the Leadership Hacker is to hack into the minds, experiences, habits and learning of great leaders, C-suite executives, authors and development experts so that I can assist you developing your understanding and awareness of leadership. I'm Steve Rush and I'm your host today. I'm the author of Leadership Cake, I'm a transformation consultant and leadership coach and can't wait to start sharing all things leadership with you. Today's guest on the show is Major General Robert Mixon. He's a retired officer of the US Army, he's a public speaker, author of a few books and he's the co-founder of Level 5 Associates. But before we get a chance to speak with Robert, it's a Leadership Hacking News. In the news today we explored that many of our leadership characteristics and behaviours have changed since the global pandemic and it turns out that empathy is the go-to leadership skill of the moment. Yes, it can be learned, even if you didn't think that was the case. As a brand new Fortune 500 CEO, Kirsten Peck of Zoetis didn't have all the answers as to how a fast-growing pet health company was going to survive the pandemic. She'd only ascended to the corn office in January of 2020, so when COVID-19 hit and revved up in the March of 2020, she was feeling quite nervous and anxious and frankly a little overstretched, as too were the nearly 12,000 workers I would imagine. So in one of her COVID-era blogs on the company's intranet, Kristen Peck talked not about typical subjects you'd expect new CEOs to be talking around like earnings or sales projections, but something else entirely, the importance of listening. The first step begins with slowing down and spending a lot of time listening to the challenges people are facing personally and professionally, she wrote. Later in a LinkedIn post, she shared her own personal story of raising a child with special medical needs to show it was okay for employees to talk about the reality of what life can be like outside of a tinted glass work window and to ask for help if they needed it. She goes on to say, what the pandemic did was make everybody realise that we were all the same and we were all in the same storm, but our boats were quite different. We had to become very clear about the importance of listening to people and understanding their needs and being flexible. Practically, that meant shifting her entire workforce to a different way of working, largely working from a home model. About 70% of Zoetis's global workforce actually started working from home, and it meant providing beefed up benefits like healthcare concierge services for caregivers, a student loan repayment program, and improved mental health support for services like an employee assistance program, and Peck's efforts seem to have hit the mark. The company employee engagement metrics are higher than they've ever been, now at 88% and eclipsing the pre-pandemic levels. And who says being empathic is a soft measure? The hard numbers look like the stock price have done very well indeed. From the pandemic to November 8th, Zoetis's stock price rose by 38%, and it's currently bumping around at all-time highs. She's been recently quoted as saying, if anyone pretended they had all the answers, no one had believed it anyway. Despite the crisis and the upheaval, Zoetis is an example of empathy being a core, strong foundation and a real metric. 
And a leadership hack here is dead simple. Starts with just listening. Listen to understand, not to cue your next question. That's been the Leadership Hacking News. If you'd like to hear any interesting stories or you've got some things to share, as you've always done, please keep in touch with us. Major General Robert Mixon is our guest on today's show. After being retired from the Army, he's achieved over three decades of extraordinary leadership success, not only including the U.S. Army, where he commanded the 7th Infantry Division and Fort Carson, Colorado, and then subsequently he served in an executive leadership position in a number of non-for-profits and for-profit organizations before starting his own organization, Level 5 Associates. He's the co-author of Cows in the Living Room, Developing an Effective Strategic Plan and Sustaining It, and also of the Amazon bestseller, we're all in the journey to world-class culture. Rob, welcome to the show. Thanks, Steve. It's wonderful to be here uh, with you and your listeners today. I'm incredibly excited to delve into your very diverse and extensive leadership career. And uh, I thought it would be useful really just to start off where it all began for you. Well, it began for me as growing up the oldest of six children in, in Georgia, North Carolina, and uh, dreaming about uh, being able to go to college. And... Uh, as a result of uh, a mediocre level of athletic ability, I was uh, actually recruited to a couple of schools. And, and one of those schools was uh, the, uh, the Army football program at West Point. And uh, I didn't know much about West Point and certainly didn't have any big dreams of being in the Army. But I did have dreams of being a college football player. So I know football has different connotations in, in different audiences here, but I'm talking about the American tackle football. Sure. And uh, I had good enough grades and, and things worked out where I got a chance to, to go to West Point and play football for a little while until I got hurt uh, to the level I couldn't play anymore. But I would enter a world that I'd never dreamed I would enter when uh, I stood out there in the parade field at West Point in the summer of 1970 with about 1,400 other young men, and you know, in about 24 hours, we we learned that we our lives are going to change uh, if we stayed with this adventure. It was going to it would change forever. And so, from that experience, that four-year journey, uh, about 40% of the group didn't make it through. Uh, the 800 plus of us that did graduate in June of 1974 came into uh, a military that uh, was very conflicted. At the end of the Vietnam War, uh, many Americans felt like uh, you know, the military was uh, to blame for some of the policy decisions that had caused the Vietnam War to end badly. And as a result, uh, the resources behind the military, uh, the draft system uh, went away. And we went to a volunteer force, but we were under-resourced. And uh, we struggled for a number of years until we came out of it in the mid-1980s and became uh, truly uh, a world-class military uh, in, in every respect again. And because we had been before. Right. But I, I stayed with that uh, journey because uh, I met some men and women who really changed my life because of the leadership role models they represented, despite the hardships. In fact, I think the hardships bring out uh, the strongest leaders, you know, when things are tough. Yeah, it develops that level of resilience as well, doesn't it? Yeah, you know, people who could learn from mistakes, who could underwrite others, um, who could develop trust and bring it to life. And so uh, I found myself, you know, as a career officer, even though I'd never planned to be. And I was privileged to spend 33 years in uniform and command soldiers 
uh, you know, up to a division installation level, which was a wonderful uh, privilege. And then as I realized, you know, it was time for me to, to open the next chapter, uh, I went into the corporate career in the middle of the depression of 2008 and nine, which was another tough learning experience. But again, you, you know, I was able to learn from others and, and grow and come out of that. And then realized my dream, which was to uh, have my own company level five associates and help other companies and organizations and leaders perhaps not make the same mistakes that I had made. And so that's been my calling now for the last uh, seven years. Awesome. During your time in the military, you mentioned that there was this time where from the 70s to the mid 80s, then there was a real shift. What role did the incumbent leadership, if you like, in the military play in making that shift happen? Or was that more of a bottom up change? I think it was a it was a two edged sword, uh, Steve. And I say that because there were senior leaders who had to underwrite some of the fundamental changes uh, in our in our culture. And uh, I think basically that in the military, you know, we had had a very deeply entrenched culture of compliance, uh, you know, in, in that mid 70s time frame, you know, do what you're told. Uh, we're not going to talk about why, you know, that we want you to comply. Then with the senior leadership and I think the junior leadership sort of coming together in, in a common view of what we should be, we began to develop a culture of commitment where people did what was right because they wanted to do what was right. And they believed in the leaders that they were with and who they were working for. And that takes years to do. This is not something that happens in a month or, you know, six months. It takes years to do it. But with the senior uh, support and the junior commitment uh, level of energy, we were able to move our culture from compliance to commitment. And that was a very significant change uh, in our army. And how would that manifest itself in today's military, having evolved from that compliance to commitment? I think in today's military, uh, as a father of, of two, uh, in fact, three soldiers, uh, now, now one who's on the career path, uh, I have seen that uh, the military's culture of commitment is very strong. And it's, in fact, more dependent now on the junior leader level of commitment, because the senior leaders now were the ones who were in the transformative uh, junior ranks uh, in the 80s and 90s, and now they're the senior leaders. So it's an even stronger movement, I think, now towards the importance of why, uh, the importance of commitment, you know, the importance of being you know, all in, you know, shameless book promotion. <laughs> yeah, we're going to get into that in a moment, actually, because I, okay. I love the whole, the whole philosophy of we're all in. But there is definitely something there, isn't there, about if you fundamentally want to shift a culture, you do have to throw your entire self into this, don't you? You do. And, and it has to be from the top down, I think, and the bottom up. It's got to be a two-way street where we are all in because we believe in who we are and what we represent. Yeah. And we're, we're going to walk the talk. Uh, and if, if we're willing to do that, then you can have a, a level five culture, as I call it, uh, yeah. where people, people believe in who we are and what we represent, and they bring it uh, every day. Uh, they're going to give all they can give to the mission, to each other. Uh, and there's an element of selflessness here that I think in the military I learned early on, you know, the mission is the mission first, 
But I think in other organizations, it's not so evident unless the leadership really embodies it and nurtures it among the other leaders in the organization so that it has an enduring quality. You know, culture is never static. It either gets better or it gets worse. And so the culture of commitment is one where you live it every day and then tomorrow we're going to live it again and we're going to keep living it because we we know that's what right looks like. And it's going to be our legacy that we grow leaders who are better people than or leaders than we were at their stage of life. And I think that's uh, that, that's a real uh, a real opportunity for us as leaders to do that. Yeah, it's a, it's also a gift, isn't it? Mm-hmm. It's a gift in so much as that when you're you're sharing, imparting, encouraging other leaders to be greater leaders, then you're not only sharing your experiences, but you're also guiding their future. Yeah, I think so. Uh, it's it's really what I've seen in the companies I've been able to work with in in my level five uh, part of the journey now is that many uh, companies and organizations don't have the persistence at, at the senior leadership to sustain uh, the world-class culture. And it's important that we reinforce each other because this is hard work. Uh, it, it's adult work, as one of my leaders used to say. Uh, the, the concept of creating an ecosystem where people want to belong to it takes a lot of effort, and there are sometimes you really, you know, you get tired. You say, well, you know, shoot, this is too hard. Let me default back to being directive, and we'll be compliant. And we'll just, you know, to, mm. to quote the sort of famous guy, Larry the Cable Guy, you know, we'll just get her done, right? Mm. And, and that defaulting back to the directive leadership uh, framework, it causes the culture to erode, and the culture can erode very quickly when that happens. Definitely so. Now, from your corporate career, having left the military and had some senior leadership roles, what was the pivotal moment for you when you thought, right, this is more about me coaching, sharing and teaching others to come on this journey? What kind of was the moment that made you look to grow your own organization? Well, I know I spent so many years of my life working for someone that I had a lot of opportunity to learn from many wonderful people, uh, you know, including General Colin Powell, who's one of the finest leaders I've ever known. And. And we all, I think, are are deeply saddened by his loss here recently. But, That's right. Yeah. You know, I had had the privilege of working with extraordinary men and women who helped shape me uh, as a person and a leader. And I wanted to give back. You know, as I uh, looked towards uh, the next chapter in my life, I said, "Well, where could I make a difference? Where could I give back?" And I think the defining moment for me was. You know, once you've had privilege of leading an executive level, a number of different organizations, you could take one of two routes in my in my thinking here. One is you can sort of, you know, quietly fade away and, you know, turn the, the mantle over to others and, and wish them well. And I know a lot of people who do that and they're very it's, it's a very graceful transition to do that. But I'm I'm wrapped too tightly. And as a result, I don't think I could have. Do, I couldn't do that easily. I wanted to still be engaged and involved in growing people and organizations. And that's why I went to the level five route and, and why I, you know, come to work every day, uh, looking forward to the opportunity to help 
other senior leaders grow leaders. Excellent. I love it. And the fact that you're still doing that today, and this is part of that education and evolution, isn't it? Being on the show, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. It's great. Thanks, Steve. And yeah. one of the things that I love about your work is that your your writing is really quite innovative. And I, and I love the, the first book that you co-authored, Cows in the Living Room. And I'm quite a visual, so I have this picture of this huge cow sat in my my living room right now. (laughs) And this is about developing effective strategic plans and sustaining them. Tell us a little bit about the concept of where does a cow in the living room come from? Well, you know, Steve, we had it when we wrote the book. We were going to title it Developing Effective Strategies, Sustaining Them. And then we shared that idea with our families, you know, the spouses. And we got some immediate feedback. And the feedback wasn't very good. The feedback was you got to be kidding me. You know, who's going to read that book? Even mom's not going to read that book. And I said, okay, well, what else could we do? And as a result, they gave us great insight about a story about cows in the living room. And essentially the story is that there was once a young farmer who wanted to find a wife. So he went to a nearby village and successfully courted a woman, married her and brought her to the new home on the farm. As they began their new life together, raising dairy cows, and winter began, one day the wife came in and found that all the cows were in the living room. Astonished, she asked why. Her husband replied, well, it's winter and the barn has no heat. Since we depend on these cows for our living, they need to be inside. Slowly, very slowly, she became more and more accustomed to having the cows indoors. Then after a few months, a neighbor from her village came over to see how she was doing. When she came in the living room, she was shocked to find the dairy cows there, calmly standing around. What are you doing with cows in the living room, she blurted out, to which the wife replied, which cows? And and the story here is that most of us have cows in our living room uh, as leaders of organizations, companies, organizations of all types. And we become used to the cows and we don't see them anymore. So if you don't effectively address your strategic planning process, then basically you're just tolerating the cows in the living room. You're not doing anything to heat the barn. And that's really where we got the idea for the title. It wasn't an original thought. Yeah. In fact, I don't think I've ever had an original thought, but in any case, you know, it's a, it was, uh, it was, it was catchy and a lot of people have asked about it. So, and hopefully they like the book too. It's a great metaphor, isn't it? Because particularly with your visual or auditory, actually, in, in telling the story, it gets people to recognize that we're all creatures of habit, actually. And it's dead easy to get used to our environment. And that's and when we get comfortable and when we get too much in control, that's probably when we don't focus on what we need to focus on. Well, you know, Steve, 50 percent, I think, of the Fortune 500 companies of 30 or 40 years ago no longer exist. And that's because many of them were absorbed in other companies, but also they became complacent and their business model faded and their competition, you know, ate ate them for breakfast, if you will, because they were more innovative and more driven not to have not to allow their cows in the living room to stay there. And then your second book, which is not a shameless plug in any way, it's a real, it's an honor to plug it in your behalf. We're all in is very much around that kind of cultural habits and sustaining it in the future. And I just wondered from your perspective, have you ever been party to or observed an organization successfully lead a culture where they're not all in? I have not. And I, I say that because I don't think organizations are truly successful unless they have a world-class culture. 
they can be successful in a temporal way. They can make a profit for a period of time uh, by by just directing the activities or uh, micromanaging the processes. But there's a there's a tipping point, and I think the most successful companies don't allow that directive culture to dominate uh, their way of life. Uh, They insist on engaging and involving uh, all the members of the team in the future uh, of the organization. And so I don't know if I addressed the question directly, Steve, but I do believe it takes uh, both heart and mind to create a world-class yeah, company, world class organization. Totally buy it. Yeah, and and those that I have seen and been part of have had both. Now there there are ebbs and flows, but um, I think that the development of your ecosystem, your culture, to a level of where people feel as though they're engaged and they're they're part of it, they belong. That's where greatness, the opportunity for greatness resides. Absolutely. And as part of that developing culture, you pull together your what you call your big six uh-huh. leadership principles to develop that culture. And I just thought it'd be great for our listeners to maybe spin through them with you. Oh, great. Yeah. The, the six principles, again, I learned from basically screwing them up. Um, you know, I've, <laughs> I have scar tissue from not following these principles. So uh, <laughs> now I, I really believe that we, we could we could do better, you know, if uh, we're willing to pay attention and, and commit to the to the journey and, and uh, follow the principles. The first one is set the azimuth. A lot of people don't know what an azimuth is. I took it from my military career. But basically the azimuth is the cardinal direction of your organization. What's your mission? You know, who are we? What do we do? Why do we do it? What's our intent? And then I like intent more than vision because I think vision is kind of fuzzy. Intent is based on that mission, what's our end state in three to five years? What does success look like? Then what are the key tasks we have to perform to reach that end state? And then what's our purpose? What's the why? And why are we doing all this? So you have mission and the intent. Then you have your values. What do we believe in? And I think you have to define those values as a team because everybody doesn't understand what they are. And then fourth, what is our culture? What are the behaviors that we are going to demonstrate and expect from all of us to bring these values to life? So setting the azimuth is the first of the big six. Uh, the second one is listen. You know, as my mom said, God God gave you two ears and one mouth for a reason. Yeah. But I rarely followed that uh, teaching from my mother. <laughs> my mom's awesome. But I, I wasn't a good listener. And we don't teach leaders to listen very well. Um, you know, Stephen Covey talks about, are you listening with the intent to understand or are you listening with the intent to reply? I would say 90% of the leaders that I've met are in the latter category. Uh, we don't really listen with the intent to understand because we don't know how. And you know, as a result, uh, we don't demonstrate to others the kind of behavior that uh, really represents listening leadership. And so it, in the workshops that I do, we, we focus a lot on practical tools for your toolbox to bring these principles to life. The third is trust and empower. You know, empowerment is the manifestation of trust, but trust, uh, I think, is one of the critical factors in creating this culture where we're all in. And you've got to commit to it and you've got to be willing to do things like underwrite some mistakes or empower others when the tendency, the powerful tendency is to go do it yourself. Uh, That's a learned skill. And I think the best leaders 
are those who can trust and empower very effectively. The fourth principle is do the right thing when no one's looking. And as we say at the Pentagon, this briefs well, but it is not easy. It's not simple and it's not easy. Uh, it takes a real commitment on the part of the leadership top to bottom that we're going to do the right thing. And whether someone's looking or not, unfortunately, there are a lot of circumstances uh, and instances over the past several decades, even most recent times, when leaders and companies have not done the right thing. And there have been disastrous results. The fifth principle is when in charge, take charge. And that doesn't mean you have to be loud, profane, uh, abusive. Uh, that's not what we're talking about. What we're talking about here is when you're in charge of being the calm and the chaos, of having the tactical patience to understand that the first report is usually wrong. Uh, you know, to, to develop others as part of that being in charge, to have that presence. And then the sixth principle is balance the personal and professional, which is not about time. Most people think that you know, balance is about time, you know, time at work, time at home. Not really, that's, that's not the case. And I think balance is a matter of energy. Uh, balancing the four battery levels we have all of inside us, uh, the physical, the mental, uh, the spiritual, the emotional. And there are tools, there are ways you can do that in yourself and in others to create that sense of balance which is a, uh, it's a way of being healthy in, 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 in framework here, uh, healthy personally and professionally, and uh, really creates the opportunity for people to, as we used to say in the Army, be all they can be. I love the six principles. They naturally feed each other as well. But the, the final one, ironically, feeds through them all and is always consistent is that balance because without it, you end up either being overworked or stressed or not having the right levels of energy to perform sustainably for the future. Yeah. And that, that for me is the one that kind of has the big call all the way through them. So I love the principles. Well, thanks, Steve. They all are interconnected. In fact, uh, when I conduct presentations, workshops, I use a gears as the six mm. principles that they're all interconnected, you know, yeah. and, and the whole, the whole mechanism of the culture turns as those gears work together with the centerpiece being, having the right values and what you've described for most people listening to this would perhaps make loads of sense and be quite academically sensible but it takes work doesn't it, it takes real practice and lots of habit forming to make sure that this is part of everybody's routine how might i start that journey well I, I, usually i will go in with the senior leadership and we'll talk about um you know with, whether they have specific goals in mind for a certain frame you know a certain element of the team or whether they want to take the whole organization and move move the needle. And most of them want to do the senior leaders up front, then cascade the big six throughout the organization as the mechanism to grow their culture to that level five. And I'll, I'll be up front here. I think it takes a couple of years to do this. Uh, you know, you, you, you can't have it in 30 days. Most of us want everything in 30 days, but you can't have it. You're going to have to develop your culture in a deliberate way. And I use a series of workshops, a small group interaction and one-on-one -on -one executive coaching with uh, uh, senior executives and high potential leaders to help get all these gears in place and, and move them forward. And specifically, we use a strategic planning process to set that three to five year goal that we want to move the organization toward. So there's a an interrelated set of tools that we bring uh, to an or a team or organization to help them uh, succeed in this journey.
And I suspect the reason it takes some time is that of all of those six cogs moving at different times, we've all probably got some of them moving at different speeds and cadences than the others, right? Yes, we do. And yeah. uh, typically, Steve, the, uh, you know, I, I put saying the azimuth up front, but some, some people will, you know, push back a little bit and say, well, I don't have time to set the azimuth. And I said, well, I don't think you have time not to set the azimuth. So we got to get through that part and, you know, establish our mission, intent, values, culture. Uh, then I think the uh, hard, and the next hard part of the of the process here is developing listening leaders, who really do listen to the intent to understand. Yeah, and and we bring some practical tools for them uh, to, to help do this. One of my favorites that that I'll share with you, Steve, is the back brief. Tell us how that works. Yeah, yeah. There's an old saying about I don't know what I told you to you tell me what you heard. Mm. Quite oftentimes, I have made this mistake. I get a group of soldiers together or team members in my corporate life together and say, all right, here's what we've got to get done. We got, you know, everybody should know what you have to do to make that happen. All right, everybody got it? And they all say, oh, yeah, we got it. And they head out and do something completely different. Well, usually you find out that uh, they did something completely different because they didn't hear what you thought you said. And the back brief is a way where they back brief you on what they think they heard before you go out and try and accomplish great things. Uh, I think that's a way of confirming that what was said was heard. Yeah. And uh, that's where communication lives. Sharing information, email, text, that's not communication. That's just sharing information. And it doesn't, you don't get confirmation that what they read was what you thought you wrote. Same with what you said and heard. So I really like the back brief or confirmation brief as a tool for your toolbox that gives people more clarity uh, across the team as to what are we doing and why are we doing it? And saves huge amounts of time oh. retrospectively having to undo stuff that people have set off on the wrong trajectory. Yeah, you know, manufacturing companies, I hear this saying over and over, we didn't have time to do it right the first time, but we always have time to go back and do it again. That's true. Very <laughs> true indeed. Yeah. So given your experience of diverse leadership and teams, what can we really learn from the last couple of years, having gone through quite a lot of crisis, and that would be varied for different people and different organizations, that will really help us be more all in? I think what the change in our world over the last couple of years has taught us is that we need to have strong fundamentals in order to endure and succeed in crisis. You know, the big six, uh, many leaders that I've worked with have come back to me and said, Robert, we went back to the big six when things really got off the rails. We said, okay, wait a minute. You know, let's have a tactical pause here. Let's go back to the big six and let's check our azimuth. Is our azimuth intact? Do we have people in the right seat in the right bus? As Jim Collins said, good, good to great. You know, let's, let's revert back to those big six principles and reaffirm them across our team and organization. And those that did said, they were absolutely game-changing in, in enabling them to keep their team intact, to work through the anxieties and the stress, uh, to build more uh, inclusivity in their teams, despite the fact that they were, in many cases, in a hybrid world. Uh, it was all virtual, and then it went to somewhat virtual, and now some people are back to being in person. But I don't think we'll ever go back to the way it was in terms of the overall environment. We're going to have to lead through change. Uh, we cannot prevent the changes from occurring. Mm. You know, our world has changed and it is what it is. It's up to us to 
to effectively adapt to it. And I wrote an ebook here about a year or so ago called Who Saw This Coming? Now What Do We Do? And uh, you can get it on, on my website. But there I talked about you know, what the crisis was, was doing to us and how the big six could be our bedrock, our touchstone to get us through it and grow and learn beyond it. And I, I guess the azimuth for every organization would be different now than it was two years ago because lots of things that are impacting on all of that purpose, behaviors, culture, values. Yeah, I think, check, you know, you have to check your azimuth on a regular basis and you have to be willing to adapt it. Uh, you know, it's, I was guilty as a young officer of, you know, if I wrote a plan, then we were going to execute the plan. And if the truth changed, so, you know, I'm still not changing the plan. Well, that kind of stubbornness was not, he- not healthy. And so yeah. my, my organizations didn't perform well when I stuck to the plan and I didn't adapt the plan to the reality that the enemy was out there and had a vote and the environment was changing and had a vote and the, the characteristics of my team were changing and had a vote. And I had to be able to adapt to that to that framework. Uh, I was kind of stubborn, <laughs> I would put it that way. Great lessons. So I get the honor now to hack into your leadership mind, having had all of these leadership experiences and many, many different environments that you've gathered insights and experience from. But I'm gonna try and get you to get them down to your top three. So what would be your top three leadership hacks, Robert? I would say the first would be, be willing to listen to the ideas of others. Try and dispense with your preconceived notions and do a lot more listening than talking. Uh, that would be my first one. And it's very difficult to do when you grow up in a world where the leader is expected to be transmitting all the time and not receiving. And I think the opposite is actually true. My second one is develop uh, a perspective where uh, you can have others take more ownership of the decision making. Yeah. And I, I say that by the idea here in trust and empower is that you really, you, I really had to learn to delegate but I saw a huge return on investment when I delegated uh, to others. One of the tools I use is called a decision tree. I write out the decisions that I must make in my position. And I tell my leadership team, then you've got the rest of them. So don't come in here and ask me to make decisions that are yours to make. I'm, you know, I may challenge you on some of the decisions you make, but you make them. And uh, my job is to help educate you and, and support you so that you have the tools in your toolbox to make good decisions. So delegation would be my second uh, hack. Uh, and both of the first two I've talked about were not easy for me. So I'm not saying this is something you get, you know, in a week or two. Uh, I've learned over the, my journey about them. And the third one I'd say is that, you know, caring leadership has huge second and third order effects in an organization. There's an old saying about, I don't care how much you know until I know how much you care. And that, you know, empathetic leadership is not necessarily sympathetic. There's a big difference between empathy and sympathy. Huge, yeah. And I talk about that in, in the work I do with teams on emotional intelligence. I, it really was important for me to develop an appreciation for the value of caring leadership. So those would be my, my top three leadership hacks, Steve. Great lessons. Thank you for sharing them. Next part of the show we call Hack to Attack. So this is where something in your life or work hasn't worked out as you'd planned, but as a result of the experience you've now learned from it, and it's now a force of good for you. So what would be your hack to attack? I would say that uh, my hack to attack is that I I really was not a patient leader uh, for many parts of my life, and I made a lot of mistakes because uh, I acted too much on impulse and instinct. 
and I didn't do enough of uh, making an assessment of what what decision would be the the best for the organization at, at this point in time, uh, or in, in in my lack of patience, um, I I think I sometimes failed to be as vulnerable as I I should have been, you know. People need to know when you make a mistake and you need to step up and say that, admit it. It's not weakness. You know, vulnerability is not weakness. Vulnerability is being authentic. And that's what, that's what the essence of level five leadership is. It's being authentic. Very powerful stuff. So the last thing we do today is give you a chance to do some time travel. So you get to go and bump into Robert at 21 and you get to toe to toe, give him some advice. What do you reckon it might be? <laughs> Boy. Talk about a challenge, Steve. This is really awesome here. I, I, you know, Robert at 21 was uh, a very driven young man. Uh, I, I don't, I don't know where necessarily I got it from, but you know, I, I was wrapped pretty tightly. And I, I think what I, advice I would give myself at age 21 is think before you act. You know, use that, you know, two second pause or. 10 second pause to say, Hey, before I you know, jump off of my tank and go running off into, into the woods here, uh, do I really need to get off the tank right now? Or do we all need to, you know, does everybody need to just be moving? You know, is all forward movement progress? No, it's not. All forward movement is not progress. And uh, I'd say, Robert, you got to, you know, mentally slow down sometimes and take a step back and say, okay, what are we doing? What's our azimuth here? You know, what's our mission? What's our intent? Don't just, you know, have everything, everything have to be in motion all the time. And it's hard. It'd be hard for Robert at 21 to take that because, you know, Robert was a, he was a guy in motion and he felt like leadership was, you know, motion, direction, uh, guidance. You know, I was in that seventies culture of uh, being directive. And I thought that's what right looked like because that's what many of my leaders demonstrate it yeah so that's what I, the advice i would give me i'm, not, I'm hopefully i would listen <laughs> yeah it's a really interesting one isn't it because time and culture play out so differently based on historic events and you look at the how the military has evolved it's probably been the, the biggest evolution in the last 25 years that the military have ever had up until that point it was pretty much kind of command and control wasn't it well yeah the command and control discussion is interesting steve because Control, you know, is the allocation of resources in time and space. And many of us believe that that's what leadership is. It's really not. That's sort of managing, in my view. Um, command is a presence. It's establishing uh, an environment where people can, can be effective because they trust you and, and they believe in each other. And so you have to, sometimes you have to have some control. I'm not d- downplaying that. But you've got to figure out where the... The balance is, to go back to the big six, of command and control. And I would say the more command and less control, the better. But sometimes you've got to work very hard to get to that level of command and control. Yeah. I have this uh, mantra, which is only control, only the things that you can control. And everybody else has got their own. That's good advice. That's very good advice, Steve. So, Robert, how can we make sure our listeners can hook into the work that you do, maybe get a copy of the books, find out a little bit more about level five associates yeah great well uh our website is uh you know https www.level5 associates spell out the five level5associates.com i certainly uh invite 
any of our listeners to uh, you know come come to the site and you'll learn more about me and, and the work that we do. And you can contact me uh, by through the website. Uh, my email address is Robert at level five associates dot com. And, uh, you know, we'll we'll circle back with you. If I don't circle back with you, you'll know something seriously wrong with me. <laughs> we'll make sure that we put some of those links in our show notes as well, Robert. So. Well, thanks, Steve. No, it was wonderful speaking with you. It's been a real honor having you on the show, Robert. I love the, the six principles. I think they're a really great philosophy for for leading teams and culture so uh, we'll do our best to help share this message with uh, our global audience well thanks steve and i wish you continued success uh, with the uh, leadership hacker program and the good work you've been doing thanks very much robert all right take care i genuinely want to say a heartfelt thanks for taking time out of your day to listen in too we do this in the service of helping others and spreading the word of leadership without you listening in there would be no show So please subscribe now if you haven't done so already. Share this podcast with your communities and network and help us develop a community and a tribe of leadership hackers. And finally, if you'd like me to work with your senior team, your leadership community, keynote an event, or you would like to sponsor an episode, please connect with us via our social media. And you can do that by following and liking our pages on Twitter and Facebook. Our handle there is at Leadership Hacker. Instagram, you can find us there at the underscore leadership underscore hacker. And at YouTube, we're just Leadership Hacker. So that's me signing off. I'm Steve Rush, and I've been the Leadership Hacker.